Hello and welcome to the Feminist Law Podcast. I'm your co-host, Courtney Jones, a recent law graduate and incoming postgraduate student in law. And I'm your co-host, Clara Tokul, a recent law graduate and incoming trainee solicitor. We're both co-founders of the Feminist Law Project and passionate about the intersections of law and feminism. Today on the podcast, we're continuing our interview with Professor Larissa Berendt, OA, Director of Research at the Jambana Indigenous House of Learning at the University of Technology, Sydney. Um, so within your article, um, if we move on a little bit further, you express that Aboriginal communities, including women, have been silenced for a long time. Um, so why is that and which um, topics or areas of their lives does this impact most? Um, I think it's been quite comprehensive in terms of the writing out of Aboriginal women. And it goes back to a to a cultural issue, really. Um, when um, Australia was invaded and colonised, um, there was an attempt to eradicate Aboriginal culture. And then over time, as we've been able to fight to get greater cultural protection of our, of our cultural rights and our cultural heritage, um, Aboriginal women are losing their cultural heritage at a higher rate. And part of that is because when white anthropologists came through to record Aboriginal culture, they always assumed that men were the powerful people in their community. And so most of the anthropological um, early data and actually data up until the 1960s focused on men capturing and collating and recording men's culture and men's um, you know, men, what we would call men's business. And so, first of all, women in our community talk about their issues with other women. We have, as I said, roles are very gendered. So there's what we call men's business and women's business. So women don't talk to men about women's business anyway. So male anthropologists didn't record any of that important information. And... Um, they also assumed it didn't exist as though the women wouldn't have anything um, that was important. And you'll often hear us referred to or see us re read us referred to as slaves of the men or, you know, the, the descriptions of Aboriginal women are highly sexist and highly demeaning. Um, women, the, strong women within the, the first colony, the first days of the colony um, that stood up against the um the the British who were here who challenged their behavior um are referred to as you know um fishwives banshees hysterical the, the same sexist language um that that gets used even today against women who are have strong opinions or stand up for their rights so there's a the 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 colonial record keeping in that to that extent wrote women out so even today when aboriginal women are trying to have their cultural property protected or their sacred sites protected people go well there's no record of that the anthropologists went through here years ago and that nobody ever said anything about this being a women's site and so in that sense this women's sites get destroyed at a greater rate than men so even today our our cultural um, heritage is even more vulnerable. But that whole role of women as 
having a power within our community was completely written out. We were written, we were we were transformed into um, the same position, assumed to be in the same position as um, women in Western societies were in theirs, where they were chattels and property and couldn't own their own their own uh, assets, and everything was either their fathers or their husbands. Um, that was assumed to be the same with us, even though it wasn't. But within that colonial society, um, we were even lower down than average than non-Aboriginal women. So we got written out. Um, obviously, there was a high level of sexual abuse of Aboriginal women that got written out of the colonial record. Um, the number of half-caste children was um, put down to the promiscuity of Aboriginal women not the appalling behaviour of colonial men. Um, so there was another way in which um, that was written out. The power that women had within those communities was completely written out. Um, and through that process, I think today, um, there still is a, through that disempowerment of women, uh, there isn't a lot of scope for Aboriginal women to tell their stories. And that's that's not just the stories of, the impact of colonization it's also the stories of our strength as an aboriginal woman myself the thing that makes me most angry about the writing out of our stories isn't just how it's tried to minimize the impact of colonization and the continuing impact of colonial laws that makes me angry but the thing that angers me the most is the way that it writes out our agency and our strength as Aboriginal women. And it just paints us always as victims. And every Aboriginal woman I grew up with, or my aunties and all the older women in the community who had enormous amount of power, out outsiders couldn't see it. But I can tell you, the men wouldn't move unless the women said it was okay. Um, you know, all I saw was strength in women. But when I see the way non-Indigenous Australians portray Aboriginal women, they portray us as weak, as exploited, as uh, sexualized, and, and it's just not a fulsome account. I mean, I think it, all women understand what it's like when we're um, stereotyped. And for Aboriginal women in particular, the stereotyping is really brutal um, and it's it's it it takes away um, a lot of our agency and denies a lot of our strength. So storytelling becomes a really important way of reframing the way Aboriginal women are seen, and it's a really important way of us getting control back of our narrative and telling our stories. I think we are the only ones or the key ones in Australia that tell stories about Aboriginal women from a strengths-based approach. Yes, Toji, and thank you again for re-emphasising the importance of the, the oral tradition um, that operates within um, Aboriginal communities um, in Australia and beyond. Um, so now turning to women, what are the ma major threats posed to Aboriginal women in terms of social justice and their rights? The impact needs to be looked at from a historical point of view in this way. There's a lot of trauma still, particularly from the impact of the removal policy, both on families and communities more broadly. And the result of that is that a lot of um, Aboriginal women grow up in 
families that have poorer socioeconomic status. Um, they're less likely to get through the education system. Um, they're less likely to have the same opportunities and they're less likely to go to university and have a professional role. So there's a socioeconomic disadvantage that comes into play as well. Um, so within that context, um, we see um, Aboriginal women often... Uh, well, first of all, I'd, I'd just emphasise there is a huge correlation between Aboriginal children who are in out-of-home care and a pipeway into the criminal justice system. So if you're a teenager and having a difficult time and you live at home and you hit your sibling or you put your fist through the wall, your family will take the time to moderate your behaviour, to punish you, to deal with your underlying issues. You, 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 your your behaviour is dealt with by your family. If you are in a group home and you hit somebody or you put your fist through the wall, your behaviour is criminalised and you could find yourself on a charge. Um, in that situation, children are unlikely to meet bail conditions. If they're not happy with their home, they're more likely to be homeless. They'll end up in juvenile justice. So it's more likely for Aboriginal people, including Aboriginal women, to have had contact with the criminal justice system as a child, which means they're more likely to be under police surveillance. And we have a lot of communities that are over police. So there's a lot of police surveillance on children and on Aboriginal people. Aboriginal women are likely to be locked up for public order offences like public drunkenness, which again is an offence that should be treated as a health issue, but it's criminalised. They're more likely to be locked up for the non-payment of a fine, which is a poverty issue and should be treated as such. In fact, our Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody back in the 1990s recommended against imprisonment for fines because it only punishes poor people, uh, but some jurisdictions still have that. So women can often end up uh, in prison for issues related to poverty or stealing offences related to poverty as well or fraud offences that are related to poverty. So there is a high um, risk of, in, of this contact with the criminal justice system as well. So really between the operation of the child protection system and the criminal justice system, you've already got two places where women um, are highly surveilled by the colonial state. Add to that, that whatever um, socioeconomic position a First Nations person is in, we are subjected to racism in almost every aspect of our lives. Even me as a highly educated, Harvard educated professor, has have gone to places in Darwin in the last 12 months where I have not been served because they can see I'm Aboriginal. Even if I don't look that dark to a non-Australian person, they know you're Aboriginal and you, you're with Aboriginal people. I've not been served in shops. Um, I have had um, instances where um, I, it has been assumed uh, that, that, that colleagues of mine who are Aboriginal lawyers are actually criminal defendants as opposed to lawyers. We get that kind of um, uh, profiling all the time. 
Um, I would was always followed in shops when I was shopping as if I was about to steal something. So that racism is a really big part of our lives. We grow up in an education system. My education system taught me that Aboriginal people were Stone Age. Um, I had racism always in my school. There was no actual formal teaching of Aboriginal issues in the curriculum, but I had to put up with racism in the playground every day. So racism is a really big part of our lived existence, whether or not we are educated, whether or not we've got good jobs, whether or not we own our homes. And so the, the failure of racial discrimination laws and the failure of um, the uh, the lack of, there is no human rights bill or human rights act in Australia. The failure of those frameworks to provide protection is a really big issue. We do a lot of work at the university where we look at people's aspirations. You know, it might be if you, what does self-determination mean to you? What does, how would you describe sovereignty? What would you like in a treaty? And in that kind of aspiration work, Almost always the first answer we get to that question from any Aboriginal person relates to racism. I want the racism to stop. I don't want to be treated differently when I go to the hospital and or I don't want my child to be discriminated at at school. And this isn't just something that makes life miserable and unpleasant. It actually is something that costs people's lives. I have had cases where Aboriginal women who are pregnant who are decent, good people, worked hard, have gone to the hospital complaining of pains in relation to their pregnancy and have not been physically examined by doctors who have seen an Aboriginal woman complaining about pain and assumed that they were drug addicts wanting to get drugs and have turned them away. And those women have died and their children, their unborn babies have died as well. This is not a one-off case. There have been coronial inquests into these kind of deaths that shows, I think importantly, that it's not just within the police system that an Aboriginal woman will, or the criminal justice system, that an Aboriginal woman will face uh, racism, but those kind of judgments made by those welfare workers who look down on the poverty of Aboriginal families and see neglect can be in jobs like nurses and doctors and have the same cultural racial biases and it's cost people's lives so you know there are lots of ways in which either the law over surveils and over punishes or fails to protect when women are victims of crime or victims of discrimination thank you very much again for shedding light on this um, so now looking to the future, as well as raising awareness about Aboriginal community silencing throughout the years, and especially that of women, um, how can we ensure that they are treated equally um, compared to other, you know, other human beings um, with their human rights and dignity respected? Um, I, I think that is a really difficult question. And there's kind of a trap in it, I think, um, in that it assumes almost that we have a system of laws that can be fixed if we find the right way to fix it, that if we strengthen those laws, we get more Aboriginal lawyers, we get more Aboriginal caseworkers, get more Aboriginal judges, 
that somehow that system is going to have a different outcome. And having worked in that system now for over 30 years, I just don't think that's right. And I think that particularly about child protection. I, I, it is not a system that's going to change if there are just more Aboriginal people drawn in to be a part of it. Um, it requires us to think differently about how we do things. It also, and, and in saying that, I do think in Australia, we need to strengthen our laws. We need to introduce a human rights framework that all other legal systems that inherited the, the British system have now got. Australia doesn't have it. So we are completely out of step with that. We need to strengthen our concepts and not just on racial discrimination. There's very few cases I have where a due process before the law or an equality before the law clause in a Bill of Rights wouldn't be extremely handy to have in terms of how the issue was litigated. So it's not just about, you know, the, the racial discrimination um, protections being stronger, though that's a big part of it. But I think we have to rethink systems more deeply than that. We have to question what their role is. If all of the changes that get made still lead to more and more Aboriginal people, particularly women and children, being locked up, then there's something inherently wrong with the system. And same with child protection. The numbers keep on increasing um, every year, no matter what governments say they're trying to do. And so I think sometimes it needs a radical rethink. Um, in the child protection space, I would like to see the abolition of the departments, the government departments that do child protection. We have Aboriginal community controlled child protection organisations, and I would like to see them take over that space and be given the responsibility for dealing with children in out of home care, would give us a completely different result. And it gives power back to the community for us to be able to make our own decisions and deal with our own problems. There is a correlation between the ideal of the principle of self-determination and the research around it that shows it's an excellent policy. And what that research shows is the more that Aboriginal people are involved in finding the solutions to the problems within their own community, and drive those solutions, the more positive the outcomes are. The less involved they are, the worse the outcomes. So there is a public policy argument for the idea that self-determination should be part of the principle. In relation to the criminal justice system issues, while I am an advocate for um, abolition of juvenile justice prisons. In Australia, children can be locked up as young as 10, which is four years younger than the international um, standard, which is 14. We should raise the age to 14. No child should be in prison below 14, and I would argue no child should be. We need to be doing a lot more investment in prevention. We need to be doing a lot more investment in the first thousand days of a child's life, making sure the family's healthy. We shouldn't be punishing people who are poor. We should be helping them fix their underlying issues. It's why I'm an advocate of the notion of defunding the police, or as we kind of call it here, justice reinvestment, where you don't fund the police to deal with mental health issues or um, 
in intervention in um, domestic violence. You fund the proper people, the medical people to deal with issues around mental health, substance abuse, family violence, and you deal with that in a humane and holistic way, not in a way that punishes. So there's a range of ways in which I think that holistic approach, early intervention, and then pathways out, that's the other thing that where we completely fail. We put people into the criminal justice system and we give them no pathway out. And the work I've done on women exiting prison shows that their pathways out are even poorer than men. And particularly if they've had to have their children in care while they're in prison, even if it's for something that's related to uh, non-payment of fines or um, some other health issue that they've had, um, it's incredibly difficult for them to get their families back. So it gets a whole different cycle of their of um, underlying issues that makes it really hard for them to get back on their feet. So, I mean, it's hard for me to think of a way in which the system isn't broken that we couldn't fix it. But I think fundamentally what I would challenge is just the idea that somehow the systems are fine and we just need to tinker around the edges. I think we need radical rethinking about what these systems are designed to do and how they're doing it and the results they're giving us and whether that's the kind of society we really we should be really um, aiming for. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And thank you for suggesting those um, those new frameworks, especially um, in relation with the human rights um, aspect and the juvenile detention as well. Um, so to wrap up now, if our listeners would like to learn more about your research as well as Aboriginal women in Australia, um, where could they do so, please? Um, look, I would recommend on some of the issues that we've spoken about, um, there is a really great um, campaign um, and advocacy space by the Aboriginal community controlled organisations in child protection called Family Matters. So I'd really recommend people looking at the Family Matters website. It's got all of the um, stats and um, the work that's being done by Aboriginal communities. Um, I would recommend looking at the Close the Gap reports that come out every year. They're a really good snapshot of the socioeconomic profile. Um, the research that we do at um, Jumbana, at the Jumbana Institute is, is often on our websites. Um, or, um, I mean, a lot of the work we do is also done in film, but I'm not sure how much of that's accessible in the UK, unfortunately. Um, I would recommend a film uh, that we made that I wrote and directed that was with the team that I worked with um, called After the Apology to get that bigger snapshot of the contemporary issues of child protection. Um, and I'd also recommend looking at the work of the National Justice Project. Um, they are co-located with us, another group of lawyers, um, and they also work with us on some of the criminal justice cases um, that we work with. And I think that their website's often more up to date. Some of the coronial inquests I mentioned into um, the women's deaths um, by medical negligence uh, will, would be able to be found there. Um, and also the um, complaint we've just taken to the UN on a death in the death in custody of David Dungay, which highlighted medical negligence issues in the criminal justice uh, 
system that leads leads to a high number of Aboriginal deaths in custody. So they'd be some some places to to check it out. I'll just also add, um, and actually just, I would also encourage people to not just look at that side of it. Um, I did write a book called Indigenous Australia for Dummies, which uh, gives you a pretty good snapshot of um, the history of Aboriginal people. But um, there is a television series that should be available internationally called The First Inventors. And I'd really recommend that as um, an immersion into the intricacies of Aboriginal culture. And what it looks at is the science and the innovation within Aboriginal cultures. And there's a lot of stories by Aboriginal women in that um, series. So if you can find the first inventors, I'd really recommend that as um, a more uplifting and positive way to engage with um, Aboriginal issues. Thank you again for suggesting these resources. As I said, we'll make sure to put all the links in the show notes, um, including to your book as well. Um, and thank you again so much for joining us on the podcast today. Oh, thanks so much with, for your interest. It's been lovely having a talk with you. In this week's Feminist News Roundup, Dame Sue Carr, the first woman to head the judiciary in England and Wales, has been appointed. She has become the first ever Lady Chief Justice after taking an oath at the Royal Courts of Justice in London. Also in this News Roundup, the Women's Super League in football is set for its biggest season yet. It is worth noting that over half of this weekend's games were played in stadiums previously res reserved for male-only games. Finally, Thames Valley Police in England is investigating new allegations against celebrity Russell Brand of harassment and stalking of multiple women. Brand so far refutes all the allegations made against him. If you have any suggestions for this podcast, let us know directly via email at contact at feministlaw.org. Please also visit our website at feministlaw.org and follow us on Instagram and LinkedIn to keep up to date with our latest articles, podcasts, newsletters and exciting news. The music for this podcast was sourced from pixabay.com. Thanks for listening.